You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Lee. Hey, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Good. Uh, let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Lee McIntyre. You're a philosopher. In fact, you're a fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University. You've written a book we're going to talk about. It is called The Scientific Attitude, Defending Science from Denial, Fraud, and Pseudoscience. It looks like that. Podcast listeners can't see this, but <laughs> others can. Uh, it's a very handsome jacket. It's published by MIT Press, uh, very prestigious academic press. Now, um, there's a lot to talk about here. I mean, the, the, the subtitle gives you some sense of what this is about. But I think in setting up the conversation, is it fair to say that this is in some ways a logical successor to your previous book, which was called Post-Truth, which was about what is sometimes called the post-truth era when, in your view, an alarming number of people believe things that are manifestly false? Is that it, it, yeah, it, I mean, it's a, a successor. I mean, it's, it's almost sort of a, a, a prequel in a way. I was working on this book long before Post-Truth, and in fact, in post-truth, one of the claims that I made was that one of the uh, roots of post-truth was science denial, that you know, we had 60 or 70 years of science denial since the big tobacco thing in the 1950s. And then uh, we ended up where we are because people said, uh, you know, hey, if you can deny the facts about tobacco or about climate change, you can de- deny the facts about anything. Right. Okay. So that's what I meant is that in your view, one, you know, part of the part of the problem we face in, in mm-hmm. grappling with the post-truth era, if that's what it is, is that, you know, science does not in all quarters get the kind of respect you would like to see it get. Um, there's a little bit of an irony in your argument, I think, in the sense that um, I guess it's an argument that science deserves our respect, but you're your perspective, you know, the, the, the basic framework, your philosophical framework is that in some ways people exaggerate the kind of respect that science deserves or something. I mean, some people have a simple minded idea of the scope of scientific authority and the, in a sense, the solidity of scientific authority, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, misunderstanding is, is not really a version of respect. I mean, I suppose there, there's a sense in which you could say that, you know, people have always sort of misunderstood what science was up to, but, you know, decades ago they, they used to respect it, but now they don't. I think some of that's due to the, the internet, uh, the, the whole, uh, uh, death of expertise thing that Tom Nichols talks about. I think that science has, uh, has gotten caught up in that. But what I see coming from science deniers these days is, is not really a, a kind of respect. It's a sort of, uh, almost the opposite. It's almost a kind of a contempt uh, born of people who think that, you know, they they really know just as much as the scientists. And I think that's because they don't really understand what science is. They don't know what scientists are up to. Okay. So before we get into your argument, and 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 again, I mean, I think you, you there's two kinds of misconceptions that, that you attack in the course of the book. One is a naive faith in science. Mm-hmm. And the other, or, or a faith that's grounded in a naive conception of what it yeah, is. That's right. And and then the other is uh, a lack of a lack of respect for for science. And you want to 
you want to clear up what the proper grounds are for respecting science. And in the course of that, you dispel some of the naive versions of faith in science. Yeah, I, 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 would say. I think that's a good way to put it. I, I hadn't thought of it that way before, but I, I, I think you're right about that because unless you really understand the proper grounding for science, uh, you, you're, you're not really uh, understanding how, you know, how to push back against science denial and such. That, I think that's right. Okay. And before we get into the whole thing, let's list a few of the issues uh, that you're concerned with at a practical level. I mean, people might guess that uh, climate change is one. Mm-hmm. Um, you, 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 you think that uh, too often the idea of human-caused climate change is dismissed unfairly. Um, creationism and yep. you know, this idea of intelligent design, yep. uh, which is a kind of a a version of creationism, I guess. Um, I mean, flat earthism, mm-hmm. anti-vaxism. Yep. Um, you get into scientific fraud a little as well, but mainly you're concerned with, I guess, um, what you could call pseudoscience and kind of denialism. Is that that's it? right? Yep. So, um, so why don't we start at the beginning with? Um, with what you might consider some naive uh, sources of faith in science. For example, there are people who think that science proves things, that there are theories that are proven. And and I, I think you would agree that you should never use the word proof to describe a scientific finding or theory. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think that's one of the myths that people have about science, and they, they use that myth to have uh, unreasonable expectations of what science can do. I think you can draw a straight line from that sort of a, a claim to the idea that, uh, well, you know, come back to me when it's settled science or when you've got more data or the idea that uh, evolution's just a theory. That's where that comes from. Mm-hmm. So why, I mean, why is it that proof isn't, uh, isn't a valid idea in the in the context of science as opposed to say in the context of math and here i mean maybe we should start with uh well go ahead and answer that and then we'll get into yeah i mean there's there's a something of a philosophical dispute about this but i think it's uh, fairly widely agreed in the philosophy of science that uh, empirical evidence uh, you know empirical knowledge is gathered through inductive reasoning where you know you're not coming up with some logical syllogism where, you know, there's, it's an inescapable conclusion at the end. And, you know, you're certain of the result because it's contained in the premises with, with science, you're um, making something of a leap. Uh, it's an intelligent leap based on the evidence, based on the pattern that you see in the evidence, but it's always possible for it to be overturned later. You know, the kind of move from Newton to Einstein, that's the sort of thing that's always waiting in the closet in science is this idea that, you know, when more evidence comes in, it will be possible that even the best corroborated theory will be overthrown. And that's, uh, I mean, some people look at that as a weakness of science. I think of that as a strength of science because it means that science is always open to learning more. It mm-hmm. means that, you know, scientists are open to new evidence and they have to be skeptical and they have to test it, but they are always allowing for the idea that, as more data come in, the picture will get clearer. Mm-hmm. I mean, pe- people may have heard that uh, for a theory to be scientific, 
it should be falsifiable. And there, there, I, I think there's maybe some disagreement about it. You can probably find yeah. there, are, there are people who argue that that shouldn't be one of the criteria. But in any event, if you grant that it is, um, you can never be sure that you've thought of every test you could subject a theory to. There could be some way of falsifying it you hadn't you haven't thought of, and there's no way, even in principle, to know you've subjected yeah. it to every test that could falsify a theory. No, that, that's right. I mean, that's that's based on Hume's problem of induction and and Karl Popper's idea of falsification. And I, I mean, Karl Popper is one of the uh, the giants in the philosophy of science. And, and I mean, some of what I say in the book, as I make clear obviously uh, is uh, Popperian. I, I enjoy his philosophy. and But I don't like to, um, my own view is that the distinction between science and non-science isn't a matter of logic. It's not a matter of method. It's a matter of attitude. So I really right. go back to something that Popper talks about early in his work, which, is, I mean, he talks about the critical attitude of science, which is kind of the foundation for his idea of falsification. But then in his zeal to take that critical attitude and make it into something, uh, you know, perfect, make it into something that's razor sharp that he can use as a criteria of demarcation, he makes it a matter of logic. And this is when he says, you know, no, no, science is actually uh, deductive. It's, it's actually there because there's a, a logical move you can make in deduction with uh, falsification. And so it's, that's something that, uh, Popper just sort of set the field on its ear for for you know <laughs> the last hundred years. Now, did you say de- did you say deductive deduction? Yes. Uh, where because- where does Pop where did Popper now? He's like you know what early mid twentieth century early twentieth century I guess the the yeah. one, one of the first I think maybe the first kind of popularly famous almost philosophers of science. Oh yes, right? I mean a lot yeah. of what people might learn in kind of high school about what science is comes from. Popper. So where, yep. what was, what did he say was deductive about? So, I mean, we, we've, so, we've, co- we've covered the inductive, the idea that, yeah. you know, you, you look around at, you see a lot of evidence and you kind of come up with a single principle that might explain it. That's induction. Where does Popper see the deduction coming in? So, so this is one of the absolutely most clever moves uh, I've, I've ever seen a philosopher make. I mean, this, this was, you could make the argument, this is why I got into philosophy, because I read Popper's book, Conjectures and Refutations, when I was 19. And I just, that was it. I was going to become a philosopher of science after that. So he claims that he can solve not only the problem of demarcating science from non-science, but that he can really dissolve Hume, Hume's problem of induction. And he does it like this. So the simplest of uh, deductive argument is if P then Q and P therefore Q. So that's, that's the, you know, a simple sort of a deductive argument. It's, it's so famous. It's got a name modus ponens. And it means that if the premises are true, then the conclusion's true. That's just what deduction means. Mm-hmm. And Popper was wrestling with this idea that, you know, everybody thought that science was based on induction. And he said, no, no, wait a minute. Uh, if it's based on induction, uh, then that's, that means that we've got this open-ended problem. We've got the idea that science can never be certain. And again, for him, that didn't seem rigorous enough. And so he looked at the logic a little bit more and he realized that there was another deductively valid, uh, syllogism, which is related to the one that I just gave you called modus tollens. And it goes like this. If P then Q, not Q, therefore not P. Right. Now that that's beautiful because that's deductively valid. Mm-hmm. 
Right. And so he founded his entire philosophy of science on the idea that what they were doing in science is saying, you know, if P then Q, and then they would look for not Q. If they could find, uh, that is, if they could find a falsifying instance for any law, okay. then that law was overturned. And so, that was that was a way to get certainty in science. And, it, and it's just, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful, gorgeous idea, but I think that it pushes it too far because there are several technical problems with that uh, in relating it to science. So, j- so just to briefly make it concrete, so it's like, if yeah. my theory is correct, then these two balls of different weights will fall at the same velocity. If they don't fall at the same velocity, then my theory is false. If That's you accept it. that premise, then then the conclusion follows, and that would be an example okay. of falsification. That, that's exactly right. The, uh, Popper's great uh, inspiration here was Einstein. Uh, Einstein making the prediction that, you know, if his uh, theory of relativity was correct, uh, you would be able to see light bend in uh-huh. a strong gravitational field. So Eddington goes out, he does his experiment. And uh, lo and behold, the light bent into just to the degree that Popper said it would. And somebody came up to him afterward and asked, you know, um, what would you have done if it, if it hadn't bent? Well, he, you know, he made a joke about it. He said, I would have felt sorry for the good Lord because the theory's correct. But that's actually not a falsificationist thing. Popper wouldn't have liked that because what he should have said if he was a, a falsificationist is, then I would have had to give up my theory. Because that's the idea. If if you make this risky prediction and the mm-hmm. prediction isn't uh, borne out, then the theory is wrong. So so Popper was right that any attempted falsification, including a successful falsification, is premised on deductive logic. But the problem is the only thing you can ever be deductively sure of is that a theory is false, right? In other words, exactly. there's no application of deduction that allows you to say the theory is true. That, that is exactly right. It, it, all that it allows you to do is to get rid of wrong theories. It doesn't allow you uh, uh, to say that any theory is right. Worse than that, Bob, worse. It doesn't allow you to build any warrant for your true theories. It doesn't allow you to say that because a theory has passed successive tests again and again and again, that it's more likely to be true. It just means that it survived to fight another day. This was a problem that Popper wrestled with his entire career, and he sort of. Now, wait, are you saying that that you're solve it, but it didn't work? Okay, so first let me get clear. So Popper really didn't (laughs) get what I said that, like, okay, the fact that deduction enters into the falsification process doesn't mean we can ever have the confidence in a theory that a truly that that deduction generally permits. He didn't. He didn't get that. Well, he he did get it on one level, but then I think that what bothered him was that what that means is that you're not ever able to say that, uh, say, you know, because you've got this great scientific theory that survived all these tests, that makes it more likely to be true. And he wanted it to be true. He wanted that, that pattern of reasoning survive, survive, survive. Therefore, it's more likely to be true. Well, so, okay, but that's a different thing. You're saying that, it's not valid to say that our confidence in the theory grows with the passing right. of each. You're saying that's not even valid. In other words, let's grant right. that it can't get beyond 99.99%, but you're saying that it's not necessarily the case that we can talk about the level of confidence growing that, as a theory right. survives successive tests. That, that's right. So, so what you said before was that all we can ever do is show a theory's wrong, not show that it's right. 
And, and that's absolutely correct. And I think that Popper would have agreed with that. But then he wants to quibble a little bit because he wants to say, well, we can't show that it's correct, but we can have greater and greater and greater confidence that it's correct. But no, you can't. Problem of induction. Uh, you still can't do it. This goes straight back to, to David Hume. And, and th- this is all just this hell of an onion that philosophers of science have been taking apart for the last hundred years. But I, I and it's don't, part I of why I stopped this. trying to my solve intuition, it. My intuition <laughs> clashes with this notion. I mean, I, I, okay. intuitively, I definitely want to believe that. And I mean, I'll give you, uh, you know, I mean, let's take the theory of evolution, which is interesting because it's a very unusual kind of science. Yep. In other words, it's an historical account of something yep. that's already happened. It's yeah. not, so you can't just like repeat it and, and watch it the way you could say a process in physics. That's right. Um, so you have these, you know, so you say, well, if the theory of, uh, let's say sexual selection is, is, uh, well, no, let's say the theory of, uh, the theory as to why males tend, seem to be less choosy about sex partners in females in most species. If, if the explanation is true, standard explanation is males can reproduce more often than females, then in those species where that is reversed, <clears throat> in other words, where females can reproduce yeah. uh, more often than males, and there are such species, okay. um, the females should be uh, less choosy about mates yeah. than the males. Now, if you find one species, species in which that's true, you might say, okay, well, it survived that test. That's good. It seems to me if you keep finding additional species in which that is true, there is some sense in which your confidence should grow, even if you can't specify the quantity of the confidence, right? It, it, and, and, and that's wrong. And it's wrong. And it's <laughs> this wrong. This is a really deep. This it's is wrong deep for a logical reason that drives me berserk. Okay. The, and the reason it's wrong is this, because the sample that you have found is indefinably small compared to the infinity of possible samples that are out there. And this is what, uh, so the probability that your theory is correct is undefined. Um, This was, this is the the dark underbelly of the problem of induction. It undermines not just certainty, but also probability. And David Hume realized it, and it drove him mad, and it drives most philosophers of science mad. Because what what it means is, that no matter how much evidence you get, it doesn't make your theory more likely to be true. Uh, and so in this case, let, let's just say, not to belabor this, but if we stipulated, if we imagined a universe where we knew everything about the, the sexual practices of every species, and yes. we knew exactly how many species there were in yes. which uh, in which one thing was true and the other thing was true, and we examined all of the species and found it and sure. complied entirely, at that point would David Hume say, well, yeah, but that's just all the species there are. For all you, if, if for all you know, natural selection could continue and produce more. Is that kind of the logic of, of it? I, I think the logic of it is that at that point, I mean, Hume has to say uncle, right? Because at that point, it's become deduction. At that point, you've looked at all the instances. It's not, it's not inductive anymore. You know, you've looked at every possible uh, uh, instance, right? Induction is when you're looking at a small sample and you're, uh, projecting oh, a larger in, whole. In the idea of but induction, with deduction, is- you know, you've looked at all the small samples and you yeah. know what the law is, right? So, so you're, you know, but remember, if the universe is infinite in space and in time, 
you could never do what you're claiming, right? You could never, you could never say, you know, for all space, for all time, I'm sure that, um, you know, light rays work like this or that species work like this, et cetera, et cetera. I've got to say, this is why philosophers of science have been so unuseful to the scientists all these years, because they've been worrying about these kinds of logical problems. And I think that the real distinction between science and non-science doesn't have anything to do with logic. Popper was right. It has to do with the critical attitude. But you measure an attitude in a very different way than you measure deductive certainty. And it seems to me that uh, that's really where philosophy has gotten off track because we've been trying. I mean, Popper did his work in 1919. It's 2019. We've been trying for the last hundred years to solve the, pro- the uh, problem of demarcation or the problem of induction. And I don't think we, we should we should solved. say if I can just we should say the problem of demarcation is being able to with complete confidence distinguish science from non-science, right? That's Whether right. Non-science with, with is pseudoscience, confidence. or it's just something that is in a different realm, like the humanities. And the That's problem right. of demarcation is being able to draw clear lines around science. And another thing you say in the book is you don't think that problem is soluble, right? Another sense. That's it, right. I, and I don't think that the scientific attitude solves it, and I don't think that it has to be solved, because the point is to, uh, if you're interested in what's the essential feature of science, kind of the necessary con- condition of science, all you need is the critical attitude. Um, there was a philosopher a few years back named Larry Loudon who made the uh, claim that if you were going to solve the demarcation problem, you had to have both the necessary and the sufficient con- conditions for science. Well, that's incredible. That would be like saying that, you know, in order, you know, this all comes from signal detection theory. If you were going to look at planes uh, coming over and you wanted to shoot down all and only enemy planes and you wanted to let, you know, all of your friendly planes get through, you'd have to make no type one or type two errors for that to work. You couldn't shoot down uh, a friendly plane and you couldn't let an enemy plane get past. Um, that, that's almost impossible to do, you know, to have a criteria that's that good. And this is why I make the claim in my book that philosophers really need to set that problem aside and figure out what's essential about science, because otherwise we're just going to keep spinning our wheels. I think at one point I actually, I, I may be the first philosopher to say it, I don't, uh, I don't know, maybe in print, I said to hell with the problem of induction, because I, I really don't think that solving these types of problems is going to help us with defining what's essential about science and using that to defend science against the science deniers. Okay. So we should say, by way of foreshadowing, uh, I don't want to turn to this right now, but the, the, uh, the idea of your, your, your title, The Scientific Attitude, is that, you know, if we want to emphasize what is most distinctive about science, I mean, uh, most importantly distinctive in a, in a mm-hmm. certain way, granted, your argument is that we can never say with 100% confidence, okay, that's science, that's not. But if we want to talk about what's really distinctively important about science and what it is about science that merits our respect and confidence, it is, it is a matter of attitude more, more than a matter of method. Is that fair to say? I mean, that's true. Most people would say, look, if you want to know what's distinctive about science and why it's valid, talk about the scientific method. And you're saying, no, Let's mm-hmm. don't talk about the method. Let's talk that's about right. the attitude. As I said, that's foreshadowing. We will turn to that shortly. But but just quickly, I want to say, 
I would think that if your view, and I gather this comports with the view of a lot of philosophers of science, is that more and more successful tests of a theory don't increase our confidence in the theory, I would think that this would put you in an awkward position when you're arguing with climate science deniers, right? Because my view about, like if people ask me how I feel about climate science, I say, you know, honestly, I haven't looked into it, but there's all these people who make a living studying it. And although I'm trying to take into account the possibility that the field disproportionately attracts people who want to prove the theory, which is something we should maybe talk about, that can happen in a field. Or, or want to believe the the, uh, the idea of human-caused climate change. Nonetheless, taking all that skepticism into account, seems to me, I, I feel like I have more than 98% confidence that yeah. climate change exists and is human-caused, A, and B, if what it predicts is catastrophe, if you have 98% confidence that catastrophe is unfolding, you should do something. So that's all I need to know. Now, that's my that's my position, but now you're telling me that yeah. you, David Hume, and a number of really smart philosophers of science w- would stop me as soon as I said 98% or any number, or even said that as the years go by, we're more and more confident. See, this, this is the problem. This is the problem with trying to found um, the, the difference between science and non-science on a logical basis, because you run smack uh, into this problem of not being able to build up uh, enough not only to get certainty, but to get warrant for your theory. Um, there, there are a couple of pages in the scientific attitude where I offer my own uh, solution to this. Uh, and I call it the uh, pragmatic vindication of warrant. Um, so it, it's a little technical, but the idea is that we don't need to solve the, the logical problem. Uh, what we really need is to recognize that science is based on the idea of justification given the evidence of, of basically of the idea of warrant. And here's, here's the, the thing. Um, is there anything that builds more warrant than, you know, building up positive instances? No, there's not. Uh, there's, there's really, there's nothing better than that. So that's the best you can do. That's the only thing that you can rely on in building up warrant. Uh, it, it's a move that I borrowed from, um, uh, Reichenbach, who try, uh, Hans Reichenbach, who made a similar move against the problem of induction, claiming that, look, yeah, induction isn't perfect, but if there's any regularity in the universe, induction's gonna pick it up. So go ahead and use it. It's not, uh, it's not vindicated, uh, I, I mean, it's, it's not validated, it's not perfect, but it's vindicated. It's the best you're gonna do. I kind of feel the same way about warrant, about the problem that you just named. I think that you know, you're never going to get to 100% certainty, but what you are going to get to is the point where you can say, um, look, the evidence for climate change is now at the five sigma level. That means that there's a one out of a million chance that the science deniers are right. Okay, um, but wait a second. That's really that overwhelming is... probability. Okay, but 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 that uh, that seems to me in contradiction with what I had understood you to say before, that that, that uh, yeah. no matter how many tests the theory passes, uh, not A, we, we can't, I thought you said both, we can't specify a quantitative level of confidence, A, That's and right. B, we can't even say our confidence is growing. So how can you, how can you say there's only yeah, one in blank chance that they're wrong? Well, that they're right? remember, the, the, the problem is there's a difference between Popper's theory and my theory. If you're trying to do what Popper's doing, and you're trying to found uh, the difference between science and non-science on a logical basis, 
then you run smack into that problem that you just said. But if you give up the idea that you have to do that, that, that what you're trying to do is to found science on some sort of a deductive certainty or some logic or some methodology that's, uh, that's perfect, and it's instead founded on the idea of the scientific attitude, then you've relieved yourself of that burden, okay? And as I say in the book, of course positive instances count. Of course evidence counts. Of course building up more and more tests of a theory give the theory more warrant. That's just a, that, that's what I call the pragmatic vindication of warrant. It's this idea that, you know, there's, there's no, there's no better possible alternative to building up, um, uh, confidence for believing anything in the world. And so the issue is, is science, uh, equipped to do that? Yes, it is. And this is the, again, it's a vindication. It's not a validation. It's a vindication of, of the, met, uh, of the, uh, uh, the way that science works. So uh, what I'm trying to do in the book, in the early part of the book, is not to get caught on the horns of all of these difficulties that philosophers of science have created for themselves over the last hundred years in trying to solve this problem. Instead, I've hived off the problem to make it one of talking about scientific values, to say, if you really want to defend science, look at how science actually works you know, the practices of science, it's based on this community uh, uh, ethos of theory testing, of data sharing, of replication. These are what really count. And those are all attitudinal matters. I mean, Popper discovered it. He should get credit. It actually goes back to Francis Bacon and maybe earlier. But this idea that what's distinctive about science is that they're open to new evidence. They're open to the idea that evidence can change their mind. And I mean, that's really the nugget of what Popper was after. And, you know, if I'd been sitting where he was a hundred years ago and I'd discovered this, you know, great uh, logical <laughs> symmetry, maybe I would have gone with it and, and made a great career out of it. He did. And, and I have great respect for Popper. But I just think that he and the people who followed him uh, are never going to solve this problem. And in continuing to try to solve this problem in the way that philosophers have done, we're continuing to make our efforts um, irrelevant to the, mm-hmm. to the current battle that's going on uh, in science because the science deniers are out there and, you know, the barbarians at the gates and the, the climate scientists and the others who really need the help um, are now reduced to saying things like, well, it's been proven when it hasn't been proven. And then what happens? They get beat about the head and neck by the science deniers. So I'm trying to give scientists a way to embrace uncertainty and not be embarrassed by it uh, so that they can, uh, you know, explain what probability is, explain uh, the rigor of scientific testing. And that's a way to defend science. Yeah. But I mean, I'm wondering if, if, if the debate between uh, climate science believers and skeptics is really as, has as sophisticated an underpinning as you're giving it. I mean, I grant you that sometimes people say, I mean, people say it's proven and then the other people might be sophisticated enough to say, wait a second, no theory is ever proven. Okay, fine. But that's, yeah. that's not nearly as subtle as, as, as what you said in debunking the yeah. idea that as a matter of formal logic, confidence doesn't grow with repeated no. testing. No, you're, you're right. And, and so I would be very impressed if a science denier made that argument. But the argument that they do make all the time in an unsophisticated way is, 
prove it. Prove it. Right. So in in this in uh, November of 2018, I went to the Flat Earth International Conference, and all they could say was, "Can can you prove that the Earth is round? Can you know? Can you prove it? Can you prove it? Can you prove it? Anything you give them as evidence, they make the claim that well, you know, well that's corrupted because uh, the the pictures from NASA are faked, or you know, somebody fudged that data, or you know, they've always got an excuse for that. So what they're doing is something you know very interesting. They're they're not allowing any evidence that you produce to you know help your theory, but they're also not looking at any uh, counter evidence against their own theory. They're they're dismissing it all. So here's an example of some fairly unsophisticated reasoners who nonetheless think that. You know they're they're the um, the king because they're able to say prove it and this and the scientists can't so this this is why they say climate uh, climate science isn't settled science or not all of the data are in or when they say that evolution's just a theory what they're really saying is prove it and you're right there's a whole um, uh, technical backlog of why science can't prove it, that maybe the science deniers aren't privy to, but all the philosophers who are just champing at the bit, to like Popper, to be able to say, I'll prove it, you know, I'll show you, because, you, you know, you want to put them in their place, can't be done. Did, and Popper, so, use, did, did Popper use the word prove? Um, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, he, he may have. I'd have just searched the book to see mm-hmm. if he used the, the word prove. But he, he did he did make the claim that with modus tollens, which is the if P then Q, not mm-hmm. Q, therefore not P, uh, that you could have deductive certainty in uh, uh, in science. That that was the logical model. Now, okay. again, he's not claiming that that's what scientists, uh, that scientists learned that and then did it in the lab. He's claiming that that's a sort of a philosophical, rational reconstruction of the process of scientific reasoning, which is what philosophers do. And, and I guess... You know, I'm more interested. So I'm I'm in the mud a little more, right? I, I'm I'm mixing it up with the science scenarios. I'm talking to them. I'm seeing what sorts of arguments they give us, uh, and I'm trying to you know figure out how to push back against it. And part of the impetus to do that is just the idea that we're philosophers of science have done the same thing over and over again, and it just hasn't worked. And I just I think Loudon was right in one thing. If we were going to solve the problem of demarcation, we would have solved it by now. Mm-hmm. We, we just we're, we're never going to solve that. Can I take a brief detour and ask you? So you went to this uh, convention of flat earthers. Yeah. Did you come away with any sociological observations? In other words, <laughs> like, is there anything? That, what kinds of people are these? I mean, it's like I, I've known creationists. I, I yeah. have relatives. You know, I mean, I was brought up among creationists, yeah. and and I've 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 met. Um, you know, kind of, you might say, high-level sophisticated creationists, you know, uh, people with PhDs in math who are into intelligent design and are doing yeah. these arcane and so on. But um, what flat earthers, I just never run into them. <laughs> and so, well, they're all in one place. Uh, they're all at the Flat Earth International Conference. I shouldn't say that because they're also the Flat Earth Society and they, and they hate one another. It's different factions. But the group that I saw, uh, like the people's friend. <laughs> Talk about the narcissism of small differences, but go ahead. That's right. So, um, I mean, the, the, the weird part is that they seemed like anyone else. They, they really, if you weren't talking about flat earth, you would not have guessed that they were flat earthers. 
the, the one, I mean, sociologically, uh, young, old, uh, I, I didn't notice any political differences. I didn't notice, uh, uh, gender differences. I mean, there, there, there were all sorts of people there. I mean, I saw a lot of black t-shirts. Sometimes it seemed a little bit like a Metallica concert, right? But, but it, it just, it seemed, I did come away with some observations. One was that they were almost to a person conspiracy theorists. They almost all believed mm-hmm. in, uh, chemtrails and, uh, uh, trutherism about 9-11, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Huh. So, so that was, that was one kind of spooky thing. The other thing, just sort of uh, demographically, I guess, that I noticed, is that uh, an overwhelming number of them were fundamentalist Christians. Really? Now, well, I mean, th- that's this, not... You know, if, if you're not even the literal truth still. of the Bible, um, you know, one guy told me that he was a flat earther because it was the only account that made sense of Noah's flood. Now, I, I want to be careful here because um, to say that most flat earthers are fundamentalist Christians doesn't mean that most fundamentalist Christians are flat earthers. Okay. So I'm I'm not drawing any sort of equivalence between them. I'm merely making the sociological observation that of the people that I spoke to, quite a number of them were, uh, were fundamentalist Christians. That's interesting. So to, to make sure I understand uh, a really important part of your argument um, before we move on, you're saying that, as a matter of kind of formal logic, we can't say that as the theory passed more and more tests, our confidence in it grows. But you have a different way of getting to roughly what, for practical purposes, That's is right. the same conclusion. That that when is we talk correct. about attitude and let go of formal logic. We have That's reason to believe that um, that in, that indeed our confidence grows as theories get. Uh, more and more rigorously and thoroughly tested. That, that's right, and I mean it's not it's not in a way that you can prove it. It's again that pragmatic vindication I was talking about. Let, let me think of an analogy to, to help here because the pragmatism can sometimes seem kind of kind of slippery. Um, I, I guess there's a difference between uh, imagine the difference between saying that you know that something is true and saying that you know that you know something's true. Maybe you could do the first, but the second is much, much harder. Okay. So in a way, what the, what the scientists are about is saying that they know that something's true. And what the philosophers have been insisting on is that they know that they know that it's true, which is way too high of a bar for the, for the scientists. That, that's just, that's a level of certainty that you're just never going to get with empirical reasoning. And so I'm, I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to relieve scientists of that burden. Uh, w- one of the best pieces of philosophy I ever read in my life was by a philosopher at, uh, I think it was either Oxford or Cambridge, I can't remember, named Hugh Mellor, M-E-L-L-O-R. And it's called um, the, prag- uh, the Pragmatism of Warrant or the Vindication of Warrant, some- something like that. It was an address that he made, a speech that he made, in which he really compellingly made this argument about the importance of pragmatism and thinking about science. And I mean, I totally bought it. I, I, after reading that, I thought, yes, he's right. Um, it's not a matter of logic. So are you, um, so are you in the pragmatic tradition in the sense of, you know, Charles Peirce, William James and all of that? Or are um, you, we're just using the word loosely now. I'm, I'm using the word loosely because uh, I mean, as, as much as I admire their work, I think that there's some, uh, baggage there that I don't necessarily want to, uh, want to own. 
but uh, I'll probably at some point, my philosophical colleagues will want me to, to write on this a little bit more and, and clarify some of that. But for now, there's there are a couple of pages in Scientific Attitude where I, I do use the word pragmatic vindication, just in the same way that Reichenbach did about induction, to, mm-hmm. because it allows me to make this move of saying, you know, look, um, I can't prove to you that science is going to uh, is going to work uh, in a way that leads you to deductive certainty. But what I can tell you is it's going to work if anything will. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the foundation for it, this idea of building up positive instances which lead to greater warrant, is the best that you're ever going to be able to do. There's no methodology. There, there's no there's no competitor out there that's going to do any better than that. And so it's okay to bet on this one. Okay. Now, so if if what distinguishes science and if what warrants our confidence is the scientific attitude as opposed to the scientific mm-hmm. method, and, mm-hmm. and maybe we'll get a little more into that, what the scientific method was thought to be um, yeah. later. But, but, but my first question is really, but isn't it the case that the people uh, that you're worried about, the deniers, the, the, the flat earthers, the creationists, uh, the climate change, you know, uh, deniers or skeptics, whatever you want to call them. Um, don't they all purport to have the scientific attitude? I mean, you said yourself, these flat they earthers, do. what the flat yep. earthers say is, oh, that evidence is fabricated. Well, you agree yep. there's such thing as fabricated evidence. In other words, right. they say, look, they say, look, we're open to evidence. It just yep. so happens that all the evidence yep. that, that is, uh, that yep. contradicts our views is fabricated, but we're open to evidence. No, you know, you're, you're exactly right, and it's maddening, because mm-hmm. when you're with them, they will claim that they're the real skeptics, or that they're the better reasoners, or they're the real scientists. And not just flat earthers, right? You hear Ted Cruz uh, make the claim one time that I talk about in the book, that, you know, well, scientists, you know, need to be open to new evidence, and they're not really open on uh, on climate change, you know, so he cherry picks out 1998 when there was El Nino as, you know, well, that was a very warm year. Let's use that as our baseline. Well, gee, I guess it's wrong that uh, the temperatures, uh, global temperatures going up. So, you know, so, so he'll make that move. Other science deniers make that, uh, make that move as well. Um, so the, you're right. Science deniers often claim that they, they have the right attitude. In fact, a better attitude. This is why I gave my, my formal rendering of the scientific attitude two theses. First, you have to care about evidence. Now, again, science and I will say they care about evidence, but here comes the second part. You have to be willing to allow evidence, new evidence, to change your mind. And that's where I got them. That's where the science deniers uh, uh, don't, uh, they don't have the scientific attitude. And I can give you an example, if you like, from somebody that I encountered at the, uh, Flat Earth Convention, who more or less proved this to me, <laughs> showed, you know, gave me a prime example of it. So, you know, I went into that conference understanding that I couldn't provide them with evidence. The evidence for Flat Earth has been around since Pythagoras, you know. I mean, 2,300 years of evidence and they still don't believe it. I'm not going to come in and pull a gyroscope out of my pocket and convince them. So I, I'm a philosopher. So I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use Popper's question. I'm going to say, what evidence would it take to convince you that you were wrong? And they couldn't do it. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't answer that question. And I, I sat down with one guy. I bought him dinner, and we sat down for two hours. And I went over everything with this guy, you know, every possible experiment we could do, rocket travel, everything. 
And we finally got to, to this. I said, um, look, you guys believe that Antarctica is not a continent. You think that Antarctica is an ice wall that spread out around the perimeter of the earth, which means that we shouldn't be able to fly over Antarctica. And he said, that's right. And I said, well, then, well, how, why do I have this? And I pulled a schedule out of my pocket for a flight from Auckland, New Zealand to Santiago, Chile. And he said, well, have you been on that flight? And I said, <laughs> I said, no, let's go. I'll crowdfund this. I'll, I'll get my science buddies <laughs> and we'll raise money and we'll go on this flight. And he said, okay, we can hold hands. You know, he was joking with me. I said, okay, let's do it. And then I, but then I said, okay, but let's agree in advance on a criteria because I don't want to get back from, you know, $8,000 trip and find out that, you know, you said, oh no, you know, there's, the glass was curved and I couldn't see, you know, something like that. So I said, Let, let's come up with a criteria. And I suggested this. If you think that the Antarctic is an ice wall, then it's tens of thousands of miles long. So we shouldn't be able to fly over it without refueling. But if I'm right, then we can fly over Antarctic and we won't refuel. And he shook hands on it and said, agreed. And I was thinking, oh, boy, because I'm going to get you and, you know, uh, Shermer and everybody else to contribute money to this, right? This is going to be the greatest thing ever. Two minutes later, he backed out of it. He said that um, he didn't want to do it because uh, he thought that the entire history of aviation might be a, a hoax to prove that planes needed to land to refuel. When in actual fact, a plane could go anywhere in the world on, you know, one gallon of fuel. And, and so I, and I said, so what you're basically saying that it's just a giant conspiracy that started before either of us were born against the day when you and I are now sitting here at the flat earth convention, having a conversation. And I'm about to use, you know, the, this criteria to prove to you that the earth isn't flat. And he said, that's right. Now that, that was as clear as a bell to me that he didn't have the scientific attitude because he was not willing to allow any experiment to change his mind. Yeah, well, he was particularly creative in that regard, I would say. He, At the he same was. Time, what's that? At the same time, I think you'll agree that, to some extent, the cognitive mechanism that's in play in him is, is something we are all prey to, right? I mean, yes. we all get attached to our theories. Oh, yes. And, and, and we come up with reasons to dismiss at first glance, at least, evidence it seems to come. That, that it's just it's just automatic. It's, right? it's, it's so like human. It, it's, yeah. it's so human. It, it's a cognitive bias. But but here's here's the second thing that I I have to make sure to say about the scientific attitude. The scientific attitude can't be, really be measured by somebody's attitude about themselves. It's demonstrated through their behavior, and as such, it's judged by other people. Okay, so in science. We, the, the scientific attitude is a community ethos, and it's measured by these practices of science that I talked about earlier. So that even if a scientist feels that he or she has a scientific attitude, they're really not the judge. It's the community. It's the, the practices of the community that's the judge of whether or not that person has it or not. But just imagine a scientist who tried to insulate his or her theory in the way that that flat earther did. They'd be drummed out of the profession. Right. But in flat earth, that's allowed. Uh, my friend Noretta Kurtka calls that a belief buddy. Okay. So in science, you use uh, uh, other people to test your theory to, you know, to keep you honest in a way. 
But in conspiracy theories, in, in science denial and pseudoscience, you want belief buddies. You want people to feed your confirmation bias to tell you, oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. All you want is positive evidence that your theory is correct, and you're never actually willing to test it. But you, so do, you, but you do find in science, and maybe you'll say these people don't really have the scientific attitude, but you do have in science, and, and, and certainly social science, maybe we'll get to your uh, ideas about social science, but you find yeah. coalitions who, yeah. who adhere to theories and they do give each other support in resisting evidence that is contrary. I mean, you're, as you know, social psychology has undergone something of a crisis yeah. where, where, where they found right. that there were people who perhaps arguably were ideologically motivated, but for whatever reason, they were, they were a little too quick to yeah. establish certain uh, things about human psychology experimentally. And, and a number of them found support for these things, and they do form coalitions in a sense. And in fact, I, I, uh, even, you know, we've talked about Karl Popper, another giant, of course, in the, in the philosophy of science is Thomas Kuhn. And I haven't read him. I don't know how I think it would be pretty hard to read him, but I'm sure you have. But in any event, he is said to have said, you know, scientists never actually get convinced to abandon the paradigm. It's just it's they bad. die. And the younger, the younger, a new generation of scientists sees the merit of the new paradigm, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, he's, he's kind of famous for, for that, uh, for that idea as, as well as, uh, as others. But no, that, that's an interesting idea. I, I mean, he's, he's overstating it, but there, there's something to that. Um, look, there is a problem, even for scientists, because scientists have cognitive bias like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not rigorous, about the scientific attitude, if you're not rigorous about what counts as evidence and actually testing your theory, you can end up having ideological science. It happens a lot in the social sciences. And in fact, I wrote an earlier book called Dark Ages, where I made the argument that um, political ideology was doing that to the social sciences in the same way that religious ideology had corrupted the natural sciences before Galileo. That there was this sense in which it really should be a scandal in the social sciences that some studies of immigration show that immigrants are a net drag on the economy. Some show that they're a net gain or that there are no really definitive studies on um, whether or not handguns deter crime or on whether the death penalty uh, deters murder or, you know, all of these other things that are, the, you know, these big, splashy, important things that you wish you had answers to. And there are right answers to these questions. But the social sciences just seem ill-equipped to find them. Well, it, but also isn't the subject not, matter, isn't the subject, doesn't the subject matter pose unique challenges? I mean, you, you can't, yeah, as a, either for I, ethical reasons or as a practical uh, matter, you ob, ob, often can't do the controlled experiment, including with yeah. many of those, with handgun, uh, uh, all of those, I would say, no, you no, can't do the controlled right. experiment. So you, you can't, right. what you can do is look at statistics and try to infer causality and try to dismiss possibly confounding variables. But as you know, you never know you've, you, you've test you've, you've neutralized every possibly confounding variable. No, right? no. And, and, and that's, and that's fine to do that. But here's the thing that I think is missing in social science. If you know in advance how you want the data to come out, that's going to mess up the way that you do it. Sure. And you're right that if there are these big ideological groups, if there are factions, sometimes the overwhelming majority of the profession all want the data to show one thing, 
they're going to find it. I mean, that's just, that's how you're going to interpret. You've got these degrees of freedom in scientific work where, you know, you're able to favorably interpret the data. Um, and, and I think that that, you know, that happens in all science, but it's especially rampant in, uh, in the social sciences. Now, look, one point that I make in the book is that you can get out of that because medicine used to be in exactly that spot. But, you know, before the 1840s, medicine was not a science. Medicine had this problem of intuition and folk wisdom and, you know, thinking that because you wanted something to be true, it was true. Well, these days, uh, and so, of course, uh, clinical researchers and physicians have values. Of course, you know, health is better than disease and life is better than death. But they found a way not to let that uh, mess up their studies through double-blind controlled experiments. Mm -hmm. So they embrace the scientific attitude. Uh, you know, round about the time that Semmelweis was, you know, doing his work on uh, childbed fever and, and then Lister and, you know, all, Coke, all these other Pasteur, all these other giants uh, in mid-19th century medicine started to embrace the scientific attitude and brought about a revolution. We need that revolution in the social sciences because without that, I think we're just going to continue to have uh, the sort of social science that we've had which, again, we would never tolerate in the natural sciences. Yeah, I mean, again, some of the questions are not amenable to controlled experimentation, but in, the social, right. in social psychology, a lot of those, they were controlled experiments, and the problem was they were not uh, being strict enough in the, right. uh, in, in, in the methodology, and they were, they were I, doing you know, various... Yeah, I mean, I did my dissertation on the methodological barriers to a science of human behavior, talked about complexity, openness, controlled experimentation, you know, all, you're right, those are all real barriers. But the real barrier is not having the scientific attitude. The real barrier is not being motivated to find a way to really hear what the data uh, have to, to say to you. So, yes, you can't have a controlled experiment. They can't have a controlled experiment in astronomy either or in much of geology. But they, but they still find a way to learn from the data. So, I mean, you know, you're, you're absolutely right that, that that can be a problem and, you know, complexity. That, that's a huge problem in the social sciences. But I think the, I think the real issue is, you know, are they working as hard as they can? I look at the example of uh, Sheena Iyengar's work on the paradox of choice. She's done brilliant uh, experimental work uh, that was out there waiting for somebody to discover it, somebody to do it. But it, can you, know, you tell before, us what was the basic finding? Was this about having more too much choice or more yeah, choice? Too much choice. Less? So, so you, you know, if if you look at neoclassical economics or you look at social psychology, you know, back in the uh, in the day, um, they I mean, they social psychology is maybe the exception because they actually did experiments. But you know, if you look at economics, they um, have all these assumptions about perfect information, rationality, substitutability for the neoclassical model to work, for the, for the math to work out. But it's not how it actually worked in the real world. Then comes behavioral economics, and they start to question these assumptions, do the experiments. And then Sheena Iyengar does this brilliant experiment, and I can't remember her, her, co, her colleague's name, but, but he did it too, um, where they found that although the neoclassical model says that people want more choice, I mean, who wouldn't? They actually don't. 
um, you can measure it statistically. You can find that when you give people more choice, uh, they're less happy. And in fact, that they, they make worse choices. And in fact, the ultimate thing that you can measure is that if you give people too many choices, they buy less. She mm-hmm. did her experiment with jams and found that if you gave people, you know, right. these huge displays of jam, they wouldn't buy as much jam as if you gave them a small display. Right. So, I mean, talk about the economic bottom line. And that was there for anybody to discover, but it was only when, uh, when she took the, um, example, when she took the, uh, when she embraced the scientific attitude, when she embraced the idea of experimentation in economics, you know, she and Dick Thaler and a number of other people, the famous folks, mm-hmm. um, that they really made a leap forward. Mm-hmm. So, um, we talked a little about, uh, Popper, and I gather it's now pretty widely appreciated that that his his view had some shortcomings. I, I guess my, my I guess my question is, yeah, what is is there? What's the closest to a consensus among <laughs> modern philosophers of science about what the epistemological status of science actually is? I mean, there there isn't one. There's no consensus there, at all. There isn't one, and this is where this is what got me so excited to write my book. Because it seemed to me that, I mean, Loudon 30 years ago said the, the demarcation problem can't be solved. You know, in order to solve it, you'd have to find the necessary and sufficient conditions. Nobody's found those. Nobody could probably find those. And if we were going to find them, they would have found them by now. We're done. And that left the field uh, in, a, in a very poor place. I'm not going to say that there hasn't been any good work done since then. But people people stopped doing what they were doing more or less uh, on that question and really didn't come to a consensus. They did other important work in, in naturalism and under determination and, you know, uh, uh, other, the sociology of science, you know, interesting work, but they more or less stopped trying to solve that problem. And mm-hmm. what I did was bring it back and say, you know what, Loudon is right. It can't be solved, but it doesn't matter because we can, the whole point of the demarcation problem was to defend what was special about science, and we can do that in another way. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, my view is certainly not the consensus view. It's uh, it's too new. But I'm hoping to provide an alternative to the path that philosophers of science have been following. I mean, there are others uh, who are trying to resurrect the demarcation problem and say that, no, it can be solved. Uh, I talk about them in the book. I, I don't think there's much promise there. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess one question I have is, um, you know, somewhat famously, postmodernism questioned the underpinnings of all kinds of knowledge, including scientific knowledge. It's generally been associated with the left. It's gotten a lot of pushback from people ranging from, I guess, Jordan Peterson to to Steve Pinker and many others, I mean, on the spectrum of gravitas i guess when we were moving from jordan (laughs) to steve pinker but um you you know i I guess to what extent were and and of course you know the the postmodernists have been famously um humiliated by that Uh, wasn't there was a a a fake uh postmodernist paper submitted by alan so called Stokel, yeah. Long ago. This isn't a more recent example. This was long, uh, years and no, no, years the, ago. The, the, one, the one in the science wars in the 90s. Yeah, what happened is that uh, all the, the postmodernist uh, ideas about how there was no actual such thing as objective truth in a text 
or even in behavior, which is a kind of text, and this infusion of Foucault's infusion of uh, politics into this that, you know, well, if there was no such thing as truth, then the people who were saying that there was truth were really just political bullies. This all got transferred over to the sciences, where people started to say, you know, look, uh, if all that's true, then scientists aren't really discovering truth. You know, we can apply uh, all of this. I mean, it's not postmodernism per se, but it's an offshoot. It's this idea that, you know, we can question the objectivity. We can question the truth-finding ability of the science. And this drove the scientists crazy because all of a sudden they were saying, well, not only are you not discovering truth, but you're political bullies. You know, you're just reflecting your own political beliefs and imposing them on other people. And so Sokol had the idea that he was going to write this um, paper that um, almost cur- cursed there, which maybe I can't do on your TV show, but he was going to write this paper, which was uh, completely made up. And uh, he's a, a physicist, and I think it was called the transgressive theory of quantum gravity or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he was making all sorts of <coughs> just outlandish claims about, uh, I, I mean, I can't even recover them. They, they were so outlandish about how gravity was just a social construction and things like that. And, and then he got, he got it published in what? He got it published. He got it published uh, in social text, which is one of the most prestigious journals uh, that existed. And then that sort of pulled the pants down um, and then led to what they call the science wars. So some people what, claim what discipline is, is the journal social text associated with? I mean, postmodernism isn't a discipline. What discipline did that journal say it was part of? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Semiotics. Uh, yeah, I was going to guess literary criticism. I, I don't know. So what what I'm wondering is, is is there to some extent was the the postmodern critique, was it grounded to some extent on the kind of uh, legitimate questions that serious philosophers of science raise about the epistemological underpinnings of science? Or was it just Um, was it just more or less completely confused in your view? I, I, I think it's completely confused. But where it came out of sociologically was, you know, after Kuhn people started to say, well, you know, look, if there's, if all these sociological factors um, determine theory choice, if evidence doesn't completely determine theory choice, um, instead it's, you know, all these other social ideas, then doesn't that have this huge implication for whether science has actually got a foundation for whether it's actually grounded objective knowledge? They started to go into the lab and to study what this field of science studies mm-hmm. was really started by Bruno Latour and others, you know, to ask, you know, can we study what scientists do, watch them, sort of like anthropologists going into their labs, and then finding that, you know, no, they're violating all sorts of norms of logic and method that Popper and all these other people said that they followed. By the way, Kuhn was horrified by this. He said that this was, you know, a sort of a misuse of his work. But but it all grew out of grew out of that. I'm going to say that most philosophers of science um, uh, have great respect for science and, and were just a little bit put out by that. I mean, there's Fire Robin and other people who are kind of, you know, the, the, the fire brands um, who, you know, claim there is no method, there is no logic. It's, you know, it's all just opinion. But um, I don't know that last word if he said it's all just opinion, but he said there was no method, no logic to science. Um, it was just, um, it, it was chaos for a while there, there in the, in the field. So, so yeah. So my final question is about, um, 
kinds of um, overconfidence that you sometimes see in scientists. This isn't uh, mainly what your book is about, but I know you're uh, aware of the issue. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of uh, categories. I mean, one is what's called naive realism, uh, you know, yeah. uh, which you mentioned in the book at least. And, th- and that, I, d- I don't think we need to get into that deeply. But, um, I mean, so to speak, I I mean, either you get in deeply or you don't get in at all. But I mean, I I, I guess you would say, well, I mean, we could pause and just say that it is what the, um, the assumption that what your senses perceive is like exactly what's out there, right? Is that? That, that, That's naive realism. And, you know, sometimes philosophers of science accuse scientists of being naive realists, um, about the, the the truth of their theories, claiming that you know they discover quarks because they are there are quarks. You know they discover uh, uh, you know various things because because they're real, and you know so they're not allowing that you know maybe there are other ways of explaining the same data, or that there are sometimes theoretical entities that they're just using as a metaphor. Now this has led to furious debate. I mean, if you want to know what the philosophy of science has been up to for the last thirty years, this is what they've been up to is having debates over what's called realism versus anti-realism. And the realist claim is that the success of science um, suggests the reality of the things that it's proposing, that it would be a miracle if science worked as well as it did, if it weren't, if there weren't quarks, if there wasn't gravity, et cetera, et cetera. So even though these are, you know, invented theoretical entities, they must correspond to something actual in the universe, otherwise they wouldn't work. The anti-realists uh, say, well, there, there are different types of anti-realists, but uh, just to, to tweak it a little bit, the kind of anti-realist that I am <laughs> says that that's nuts because there are an infinite number of possible ways of connecting any finite number of data points. There are an infinite number of theories and that just because your theory works doesn't mean that it's true. It means that it's uh, well corroborated, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best theory. So we'll go back to that pragmatism issue for a minute. Maybe it means that it's a good theory. Maybe it means it's the best one that you've got for now, but it doesn't mean that it's true. And so, you know, that's, it's the, you said overconfidence. I'd use the word hubris. It's the hubris of thinking that just because your theory works, that it's true. And I think that you can never get there. I think that there's always just that little bit of an edge uh, over the horizon that you can't see that suggests that your theory might not be true. Now, that might sound like a contradiction with what I said before about pragmatic vindication and warrant. But remember, I'm giving up the idea that scientists have to say that they know what they know, you know, that, that they have to be absolutely certain about it. But when when philosophers come along and say, oh, no, those theories are true, they're certain, they're guaranteed 100%, mm-hmm. given how well the theories have worked, that's where I check out. I don't think that you can necessarily know that a theory is true because, again, there's always that more data over the horizon, which is exciting. It's what makes science so exciting. Uh, right. This is the part of the book that didn't get published. Uh, I had a whole chapter on, the, it's called The Problem of Underdetermination, and I finally, for, for pity's sake, uh, cut it, and I'm going to publish it as a separate article because it just it, it was it was too much uh, for a trade book. And uh, but it's uh, it, it it I think there is a contribution to be made there to to the argument. But I'll make it separately some other. So in time. other words, what we can say is things like when we proceed on the assumptions that electrons do exist as we conceive of them, 
that does enable us to build these machines that successfully do these right. things. So in that sense, there must be something out there that, you know, bears a relationship to this thing. It's not oh, like yes. we're imagining no, something no, no. entirely. But as for whether electrons exist per se, quantum physics went on to, to, to give us reason to doubt that we had a clear That's idea right. of what an exactly. electron is. And 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 uh, Einstein overcame Newton. I mean, we can have the best corroboration to think that something is true, and then that next little bit of evidence convinces convinces us that there's an alternative way to explain it. I mean, right. Einstein and Newton both explained basically the same facts, but they did it in radically alternative ways. So, was Newton's theory of gravity true? No, it wasn't true. And Einstein's may or may not be true. We we don't know. What we can say is that. I mean, yes, I believe in, when I say I'm an anti-realist, I, I think there's reality. It's just that I'm, I'm an epistemological anti-realist. I don't think that um, the, the success of your theory uh, tells you any, it gives you any certainty that you know reality. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm kind of with Plato in the cave there. I think we're looking at the shadows and we don't know what it looks like outside the cave. Okay, well, maybe that's a good enough place to end it. I mean, I was also going to ask you about scientism and the other the other form of uh, hubris. If you have any quick examples of that, of people, in other words, scientists or science sympathizers of science who themselves have an yeah. exaggerated conception of the scope of the the, the scope yeah. of science's authority. It's a danger. I, I mean, I, I went to a conference one time on scientism, which was what convinced me to write the scientific attitude, because my paper was basically saying. You guys really think that scientism is our biggest problem? I mean, the science deniers are knocking down the doors, and you think that the biggest problem is people who are too confident in science? I mean, yes, yeah, scientism is a problem. Uh, I think it's arguably what led to that mistake I was talking about earlier with neoclassical economics. You know, the, the hubris of saying, well, just, you know, our models work so well because they look just like the models in physics. But, but that's, um, you know, if, if your scientism is this idea that, um, you know, you've got the, this methodology that works and you can apply it to anything, you know, you can apply science to ethics, you can apply exactly. you know, science to whatever you, to, to religion. Um, I, I just, I think that's uh, beyond the, the realm. I think that science works very well where it works, but there are some areas where maybe there's truth, maybe there's knowledge to be had, but you're not going to get it through empirical uh, reasoning. And, and that's, you know, so, so I agree that scientism is a problem. I just have a real uh, quarrel with the people who think that that's the main problem that we're facing these days. But don't you think it, it can feed the problem you're concerned about? In other words, when like, when like Sam Harris comes out and says, um, science can prove moral truths, maybe he didn't put it quite like that, but it was a quite naive, I think most philosophers would say, um, book about, uh, it was called The Moral Landscape. And, and, and people... Yeah. People are like, wait a second, now you're telling me to buy into science. I have to let you tell me what my most fundamental values are. I, I think that breeds a yeah. resistance to science. I, I, I think you're right. But but again, that's that's not resistance to science. That's resistance to scientism. I mean, yeah, but, but it's easy for them called. to get. No, you're I'm, right. You're, I'm, not you're sure right. They, I'm not sure they're always going to make that distinction. No, that I, it encourages right. them to see science as the enemy is what I mean. I, I, I think you're right. I think that uh, I think that we have to acknowledge that there are limits on scientific knowledge. And one limit that I'd put on it is that uh, it, it can't do what you just described, which is have a, 
I have a science of, of values. I'm not even sure that would work because values are, are a normative matter. But I, but well, I think that, yeah, yes, that's the problem. He, he, when people talk about proof and certainty, you know, yeah. and something like that, I, I think we're in deep water. Okay. Well, thank you for taking the time. So the book is The Scientific Attitude, Defending Science from Denial, Fraud, and Pseudoscience. We will link to it on the um, on the meaningoflife.tv website. And uh, anyway, people can Google it. It looks like that if you're if you're imbibing this via video. Very very nice. Yeah. There's there's let's, let's, uh, twin, twin twin book plugs. Twin book. Um, so thank you, Lee, and and good luck with it, and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure to be on your program. Same here. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.